Take your Bibles while the children are on their way to Junior Church and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, second book of the New Testament, and chapter 5, where we will start today, take up where we left off last week. Let's... uh, if, if you don't have your Bible, you'll find one in the pew there, and you'll find the Gospel of Mark fairly easily there in chapter 5, once we start right in verse 1. And uh, <clears throat> we're going we're to talk about demon possession this morning. I asked people to pray for me this morning, because demon possession, you're talking about the devil, it's never an easy subject, and uh, it's something that we should, we should be in prayer about for those who teach on the subject, I believe. This is the worst case of demon possession in the New Testament, I believe, that we are going to cover in these 20 verses this morning. And it is one that we should be aware of. This particular account here in the Gospel of Mark also appears in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8 and the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. And you'll find it there in a slightly shorter version in each case, but Mark has the longest account of this demon possession situation where, he, where Jesus encounters them. And let me say briefly that the real purpose of this being here is not so that you're going to be casting out demons, you're going to do exorcisms, any of that stuff. I don't believe that's for today. Um, there's another reason why I mentioned that too, and that is because this is really about Jesus Christ and not about demons. It's really about his supremacy and his power and his authority and who he is in the grand scheme of history. And he's making that point with his disciples and the people in the area. So we come this morning to this story, which is in a number of little parts. I've divided it up. You have, first of all, the panic in the demoniac, the man who is possessed. Then you have the panic in the demons, and you have the panic in the pigs, and you have the panic in the public also. And then you have peace in the end. And I've divided it into those sections. So we're going to first of all look at the panic in the demoniac in verses 1 through 5. Just follow with me just a verse or two here and there. It starts off, we're just going to read it portion by portion as we go through. In verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. Now this is talking about Jesus and his disciples. If you remember last time, the last chapter... They went out in the boat because Jesus was tired. He'd been working and healing people and teaching, and, and people were swamping him. So the disciples got in the boat with him. They took him out to the sea, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, which is where they were, near Peter's house. And they were heading to the east side for a little rest, and they got into a big storm, and the disciples panicked. And Jesus said to them, Oh, you a little faith, after he woke them up. He was sleeping in the stern of the boat near the tiller. And, um, and then he probably went back to sleep again and the storm calmed. And we are finding now in verse 1, they came to the other side. So after the storm, the seas calmed down, the wind stopped, and they continued on probably only about eight miles total across there at the very most. And it probably didn't take them much more than another hour or two to get there. And it was dark when they left, so it's probably still dark when they arrive on the other side, the east side of the Sea of Galilee, into the country of the Gerasians. The Gerasians, Luke 8 mentions it also. 
and um, sometimes it's pronounced Gadareans or um, Gergesians. There's different ways that it's pronounced in different places. But this is a place that is largely Gentile territory now. And there's a whole big complex of villages in this area up on the, above the rocky cliffs there. And uh, it's in what would be modern-day Syria today, not very far from the Sea of Galilee, where some of it was, but he's just here on the lake. And here they are. It's probably dark yet. There's going to be demon possession taking place. Kind of a spooky scene, actually, if you think of it. And try to picture yourself there with Jesus. The other boats that were with Jesus and the disciples in the one boat they were in, they've probably peeled off, probably gone back because they're not mentioned now here. Gentile territory is where they were. And that's interesting because the Gospel of Mark was written primarily to who? Romans, Gentiles. And these are Gentiles. And Mark makes a big deal of it. He has the most information about it. Verse 2. We see a little bit more. When he got out of the boat, that would be Jesus, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And remember, John likes to use the work immediately. John Mark, that's his, that was his name. He uses this word over and over because he's fast moving. So immediately a man came from the tombs with an unclean spirit and, he, and had his dwelling among the tombs. So on the side of this cliff here, there's, there were tombs there that, that people would be buried in. They were hollowed out of the cliffs. They weren't just um, caves. Uh, probably some of them were fat, rather well developed in the area, and it became kind of a burial ground up on these cliffs here. And so this, while he was up there, this man comes down with an unclean spirit. That basically means he had demons possessing him. This an unclean spirit here. And um, that means that this man was kind of weird. It's kind of different there. He'd been living in the tombs. He'd been living up on the cliff. Now, just think of that for a moment. What that would be like to live in the graveyard. We have a graveyard behind our house, not very far. I hear strange noises coming from that. That's sweetness, the mule that works in our living nativity. It's nothing more than that, but sometimes the kids get kind of scared. But a little bit farther than that is a cemetery, the Artendale Cemetery that's out there. It's a, not a bad place to visit during the day, but maybe at night it might just kind of send a chill up your spine. But this guy lived in the tombs because there was no other place for him to live. He was a reject. He was, he was more than a homeless person here. So today, by the way, uh, I know that demons probably are not fashionable to be leave in in our culture because we live in a scientific culture. We figured all those things out. And so the problems that we have, we know we've got a fix for them. We can send them to a psychologist if it's really weird, and we can give them a pill, or we can incarcerate them if we have to. But Jesus views these as real demons. And there is a real demon world when you read the Bible. And it tells us that there are Satan's emissaries, and Satan is the prince of the power of the air. That's the area around our world, and he is very much involved, just so you know where I'm coming from. You cannot explain it away with the simple um, exegesis of Scripture, which makes it very clear that this is truth. So they were unclean here, a spirit, and the unclean spirit has this man 
living in an unclean area. And by the way, tombs would be an unclean place for Jews to even think of living in. And touching a body would be unclean. A dead body is considered to be unclean. So in the Old Testament, there, there's uh, the book of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and so forth. They speak a lot about this and what to do if you touch a body so it's because it's considered to be ceremonial, unclean, and so that you can be free from that. But this man is unclean. Now, how did he get this demon in him? We're going to see more about that. How did he get that in? I, I thought that was interesting. Well, I, I think the best answer is that when a person yields themselves to sin, when they yield themselves to sin in a total kind of way, they become open to demons. They yield themselves to drugs. They're out of control. They become open to demons. That's the world that we live in. It's the world that's always been, been there. And this demon was under control. This man ended up losing whatever he had before. He lost his home. He lost his family. He lost his friends. He lost his wife. He lost his job. He lost his sanity. And he is up there. By the way, the other Gospels do indicate that there was a second person here also that was just like the first one, but evidently, uh, Mark does not mention him, although Luke does. Mark doesn't mention him because Mark mentions the main one, the one that was probably the worst off here, and uh, doesn't bother to mention the other one because Mark is always in a hurry. He's doing things immediately, you know. So verse 3, the latter part, it says, And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with chain, because he had often was bound with shackles and chains, Shackle would be kind of like a uh, primitive handcuff. And chains that had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. That's a pretty powerful picture. This guy had superhuman strength. You've probably seen accounts of some people like that sometimes and some people are just plain strong because they've worked out. But some aren't. And why are they so powerful in this particular situation? Well, we keep in mind that if he is demon-possessed, if a demon is in him, then what essentially is there is an emissary of Satan. And Satan was the prince of the power of the air. And we know that angels, when they were created, were given a certain amount of power to do things. It was very powerful, physically powerful, when they appeared on earth and they were able to do things that couldn't normally be done, but they were not all powerful like God is. They were limited in their power, and these demons were part of that original creation. And if you wonder where demons came from, when God created the angels who were his messengers, angelos means messenger, that's the word for angel, then uh, they, um, some of them fell, Satan led them. He was a high emissary among the angels. He led about a third in, in rebellion. They fell. And um, they still had the powers that they, did, that they had before. And so we would say these demons were just fallen angels. They're spirit creatures. And um, they have the same power to some degree that Satan would have. Well, powerful they were, and it was causing a problem because this man could now break chains and no one could restrain him. And he's just running amok in these tombs here. Verse 5. Night and day he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Kind of was cutting himself, you know. We would say, well, that's obsessive compulsive. You could have a pill for that. 
wouldn't work in this case. Sometimes people do strange things and sometimes the medication does help. But generally it makes a person somewhat beyond calm, kind of sleepy. You lose your abilities to some degree. But it was what we would call normally obsessive compulsive. And we can see this nature, the nature of this problem in three ways. Number one, he was awake night and day. He didn't sleep. Kind of a supernatural power. You've heard of people on drugs that are awake night and day. It makes you kind of wonder what's going on there, doesn't it? Number two, he screamed blood-curdling cries during the night. Like sweetness or donkey. Now, I'm not saying that the animal was full of the demons here next door. I think it's a good animal. It's just the way donkeys do. But he screamed, and his screams were echoing throughout the tombs and the hills and the rocks that were there, like a drunken man that was out of control. And number three, he cut himself with probably flint kind of knives made out of sharp rocks, trying to get relief from the problem that he had. He was worse off than Job. Worse off than Job. We see Job's troubles, because Satan was clearly in dwelling him through his demons, whereas with Job, um, Satan was working on the outside. But here it's on the inside. Today we would say, and I would say, we would say people like that are mentally ill. And we would give them some kind of therapy, usually from a secular perspective, and um, sedative to try to calm them down, confine them and put them in an institution where they couldn't get out. But Jesus doesn't do that. So there's panic in this demoniac here, and now secondly, in verses 7 through 12, there is panic among the demons also. Panic among the demons in verses 6 through 12. Uh, and there is a terrifying plea, excuse me, plea here of the demoniac, we see that, Seeing Jesus, in verse 6, from a distance, he, that's a demoniac, ran up and bowed down before him. And by the way, keep in mind, the other gospel accounts give a little, slightly, a few other details, although Mark gives the most, but they also mention that he was nude. He didn't have any clothes on. That's how crazy he was. So he runs up with no clothes on. It's dark outside, likely, and he sees Jesus, and he bows down before him. He sees him at a distance here, and then in verse 7 it says, shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Now, I don't believe that this is really the man speaking here. It's his tongue and his mouth speaking. I believe this is the demon now speaking through this man who is demon-possessed. And um, by the way, Matthew 8, the other account, says when he said that, don't torment me before the time, before the time. What time is he talking about? He's talking about the time, which is mentioned also in another place, where in the end of time, in the end of days, when Christ comes back again, Satan and his emissaries will eventually be thrown into the pit forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's a scary situation. This demon is speaking through this man, and he's saying, don't, don't 
torment me. And by the way, he recognizes who Jesus is. He calls him the son of the most high God. It's interesting. We've already seen that when the demons see Jesus, they know who he is and they call him out rightly, accurately, who he was, son of the most high God. The disciples didn't quite get it. They never used that term uh, even at the end of the book of, of uh, Mark. And the first person to really use it is a Roman soldier towards the end of the book of Mark when Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and all of that. But the demons always get it right. And how do they know that? Well, they've been around for thousands of years, if not more. And they know all about what's going on. They remember when they were cast out of heaven, when they remember they were cast out of heaven by the Lord himself because of Satan's rebellion. They know that there's coming a time and they are afraid of it. They are in panic. The demons are in panic because they know they're going to go. He doesn't want to go right now. Please, Jesus, don't cast me out now, please. Is kind of what he's saying. So, why does it take men like the disciples so long to recognize who Jesus is? And they're in the boat. And they're seeing the demon call, call Jesus his rightful name. But the disciples don't really, haven't really got to that point yet. Why does it take us so long? Well, it's very interesting. We saw last week when they were in the storm and they panicked and so forth. And Jesus says, O ye of little faith, his most common reference to his own disciples. We saw that there, but we would actually see later in another instance where they're in the boat where they actually grow. I just I would mention that to you. I didn't last week. They actually seem to be growing in faith, but it's slow. They're kind of slow. We are kind of slow, aren't we? We're more than kind of slow. Let's just be honest with ourselves. We're really slow. So uh, since creation, these demons have been gathering information. They have a big database. Verse 8 talks about a terrifying command from the Lord there, of the Lord, a terrifying command. And he had been saying to him, that's Jesus, had been speaking to this demon, it kind of gives a little bit of the picture there. Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. So the spirit is the one who is speaking here and not the man. And so Jesus now addresses the spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. So Jesus is now commanding this. By the way, whenever Jesus gives a command to the demons, they always obey. And they obey right away, better than we do by far. But he told them what his name was, Legion. Legion is a, uh, a, a Greek term for uh, 6,000 Roman soldiers. So he's implying that there's more than one of us in there. We don't know if there were 6,000 demons. It's possible, I suppose. We're not told how many demons were in, but we soon find out there is more than one demon in this because the plural is going to be used uh, later on in this account. The we kind of word. Mary Magdalene had seven devils, so we know that's true later on in chapter 16 and so on. And I'm sure we can affirm it from the Old Testament. So verse 10 now, we have a terrifying plea, pleading of the demons also. It's a terrifying situation for these demons. And he began to implore him, that's Jesus, 
earnestly not to send them out of the country. And Luke 8 says not to send them out of the country, but into the abyss. That's the final dwelling place of all demons, all and the devil himself in the end. And that's where they will be for all eternity. You might call it hell. By the way, no demons have ever been to hell yet. Satan hasn't been there yet. There are a few demons there because there were some that were especially bad early on, and they're there now, but the great majority have not. And by the way, Satan and the demons do not run hell. They are being tortured there. The idea of Satan stoking the furnace is from the comic book books. So they, they didn't want to go to the, the abyss, but that means that they knew they were going there eventually, and they knew that eventually they were going to be cast into this place, and they were, they were terrified about it. I think the word terrifying is a pretty good word that really tells you what this demon was thinking. Verse 11, verse 11, Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, and the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so we may enter them. Well, swine are unclean animals in Old Testament. We know that. And uh, the Jews were very much aware of that. The Old Testament books make that very clear. And this was a Gentile area, so swine were pretty much open. In fact, I saw some inscriptions on ancient uh, stones from that area where they have people walking with pigs. Never see a Jew doing that. And if these herdsmen were Jews, they were not following Judaism. They were out of sync with that. It was a, this was a Gentile area, but there were Jews there. Of course, we would assume that. And um, they definitely were unclean. And uh, why did the demon want to go to the swine? Why did he want to be cast into swine? Because he didn't want to go to the abyss. It's better to live in a pig than to live in the abyss, is kind of what he's saying in a way. Uh, but um, there are other things involved there, of course, too. So panic in the demoniac and in the demons, and now thirdly, in the pigs. Verse 13, there's panic among the pigs, too. It says, Jesus gave them permission. And the demons were instantly put into the pigs there. Coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down a steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. They did it on their own. This is the first case of suicide. <laughs> you got it. You're awake. They committed suicide. They did. They jumped into the water. Can you imagine 2,000 pigs jumping off a cliff into a water in the dark of night? And the herdsmen are just trying to figure this all out. They're scared to death there. And um, we're told exactly how many pigs. We don't know how many demons were there, but there had to be a lot of demons if they were put into the pigs and then 2,000 of them, and they went into the water. Well... It's a good thing Peter wasn't there. Jesus would have been in trouble. 
But the swine were less comfortable with the demons than the men were who had them in. Otherwise, they would have committed suicide also. This is serious stuff, isn't it? It's a little humorous there, but and we know that we're safe in Christ. But nevertheless, we do live in a world, and nothing really explains some of the evil we see in the world except that there is an evil force out there, and that is Satan and his people. Some of you have read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. It's really about that kind of thing, the demons behind the scene. And I think it's actually pretty good. He's very well-founded and so forth. A more modern version is called This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Frank Peretti used to be in my Sunday school class on Vashon Island when I was a um, lighthouse keeper over there. And the pastor asked me if I would teach the class to try to get Frank Peretti straight. <laughs> Actually, he did straighten out pretty good, and I don't think it was because of me, because I didn't know that much about it, but I was studying the Bible, and I was a born-again believer and friend of the pastor. And This present darkness pictures the same thing. It's picturing the demons behind the people who are in the churches. And I, after seeing the book and reading it, or reading about it anyway, I didn't read the whole thing. I wasn't interested, but I knew enough to know that what Frank Peretti was talking about was the church we were in. And some of the people in the church that were being motivated by demons, perhaps, different names, but being there and having lived in that church that Frank was in and uh, so forth. He, he is, a, he is um, a good writer. He's written some other stuff and he's actually uh, come around to center a little more. I really appreciated him, however. So the pigs died, but the demons didn't. And that's a good question. The pigs died, demons didn't die. Because you can't drown them. But... Um, they came out and they inhabited other things in other places. So, can Christians be demon-possessed? That's always a question we should ask. Can Christians be demon-possessed? And I'll just flatly say no, because I believe it's very clear that we have the Spirit of God in us, and greater is He, that would be the Spirit of God that is in us, than he that is in the world. Right, right. So we keep that in mind. If you're a born-again Christian, you cannot be indwelt by a demon. You want to make sure you're really born again. 1 John 4, 4 says, You are from God, talking to Christians, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the forces, world forces of the darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He's talking about satanic realm. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. You need to study that armor of God in Ephesians 6. I wrote an article once on it. Maybe I should dig it out. We should print it. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand. There's a lot about that armor you can study about there. It's a longer section. I just quoted a portion of it. Only unbelievers may be possessed by demons, but not all unbelievers are by any mean. If they open themselves up, if they yield themselves to sin, if they turn the wrong direction, if they allow themselves to be out of control, they can 
have demons possess them, and that doesn't make them all the same as this guy, but this guy and his buddy. There was two, two of these guys here that were demon-possessed were both in the same uh, situation, we could say. So what do we do? What do we do, and how can we help a person who seems to be possessed? We don't seem to see it openly here in America. I think that's on purpose by Satan, but we see it very openly in other places like Brazil. And my son Caleb will tell you stories about seeing it there. And I think in Ukraine you might see some of that too because it's a very much mystical place. Pray for them, number one. You start praying for them. God will work and move in that. I don't think we have the power. Pastors don't have the power to cast them out. Priests don't have the power, although they think they do sometimes. But um, um, some of the unspeakable, terrible things can only come from the demon world. Verse 14 goes on, talks about the herdsmen. Also, they ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. So they went off. The herdsmen were there, probably Gentile herdsmen. They may have been Jews, but whatever they were, they were, they were open to being in the tomb areas, and uh, the demons were sleeping with the dead people in the tombs. Can you imagine that? And terrible things going on there. Probably unspeakable things. They were running around naked. There were probably sexual things that we don't even want to hear about here. There undoubtedly were those kinds of things. So they went and reported, the herdsmen did. They went into the villages. Keep in mind, there were quite a few little villages up in that area that are in that Syrian area. And they were Gentile villages, and they told them about the pigs. And the people come running down then. They really, they really came back quickly because they wanted to see what had happened. They lost 2,000 pigs. It was going to affect their economy. It was going to affect their economy. But what on earth made these pigs jump into the water and commit suicide. That's what they wanted to know. So the looky-loos came. The looky-loos came. And now we move to verse 15 and the panic in the public also. The panic in the public. Says they came to Jesus. And Jesus is there. The boat is uh, sitting on the beach, I'm assuming, there. Some time has gone by now. It wasn't just minutes, probably hours. Probably morning by the time the people got there. It took a while to get to those villages. Probably daylight now. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became, what's the word? Terrified or frightened is another translation. So this guy's sitting there now, and he, he's changed here. He's not the same as he was. He's sitting and he's not running around. He's quiet and he's not screaming. He's clothed and he's not naked. And he's sane and not insane. It's a pretty big change, isn't it? Pretty big change. And they became afraid. Why would they be afraid? Why would they be afraid? Well, if they are afraid. It's probably because they're afraid of Jesus and what he did. They have never seen anything like this before. And they were panicked because Jesus could do this. What could he do to us? Make us go running into the water or something. Verse 16. Those who had seen it described it to them. They gave an account to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man. 
And so the people knew all about it and also about the, the swine. They described how the, uh, the pigs were, were, took off running, 2,000 of them jumped over the cliff, landed in the water, and, and these people were listening to the story because they weren't all there, but the ones who were recounting it were. And so then they began to implore him, that's Christ, to leave the region. They were frightened or terrified. Now they want him to leave the area. They don't even want him around. It was unexplainable what was going on as far as they were concerned. You know, I found just on a practical level that when people get really saved, if a person really is born again, it changes their lifestyle somehow. It depends on how deviant the lifestyle is. The more deviant the lifestyle, the greater the change will likely be. But if you were raised in a, a home that you know, had some Christian training or even if it was something that was just moral, then you get saved. You don't change quite as much, and so people just don't think that much about it. But they could not explain this. This man was absolutely crazy and screaming and up all night and running around naked. Now he's just totally the opposite. And it's interesting when people see the works of God in people's lives. Sometimes they can't believe it. And I think of my friend, Navy SEAL, who got saved in this church years ago. The wickedest, toughest, hardest man you would ever meet became the softest, most powerful evangelist you would ever meet in his last days. Some of you know him. It's true. Bob Thompson. We need to resurrect that testimony that he gave just before he died. Well, now we come lastly to the peaceful proclamation in Decapolis here, verses 18 through 20, the peaceful proclamation. It says here in verse 18, as he, that's Jesus, was getting into the boat, getting ready to go back, he didn't really do anything else except cast out the demon, which makes you know, it gives you the implication that, that Jesus was there for this one purpose providentially. He was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany the man. Now, he's in love with Jesus in the, in the right kind of way. He loves him. He wants to go with Jesus. That's natural, isn't it? I know that when I got saved, I wanted to be close to my pastor as much as I could, you know. And um, he took me hunting up in Alaska and so forth. And it was a wonderful privilege to be with him. But that wasn't the plan of God for the rest of my life or his. And verse 19 says, And he did not let him, that is, Jesus wouldn't let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. So here he is, clothed, clean, sane, and he wants to go with Jesus. He just wants to be with Jesus. You're going in the boat, Jesus. I want to be in the boat. I want to be where you're going. Jesus was going back to Capernaum where Peter's house was. And that's the temporary place he was staying there. Jesus said, I have plans for you. You're going to take care of reaching out to these people. And he became, really, the first missionary to the Gentiles. First missionary to the Gentiles. What a powerful testimony he would have. And he was delivered. He was changed. He was different. Now the question I have is, you, have you been delivered? Have you been changed? 
Is your life full of Christ, or are you at least focused on that direction? Not your perf not perfect, not perfect. No one's perfect. Even after salvation, we still sin. Have you repented? Have you confessed your sin to Christ and sought for the forgiveness that he offers any who will come to him with mercy? Ephesians 2, 1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You may not know that you were walking according to that course, but that's what the Bible says. When we're on our own course, we're really, Satan's in the background somewhere. Maybe not to the degree of this person. And Peter made it very clear at Pentecost to the people who came, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He said, repent, that means to turn around, change your thinking about who Christ is, put your faith in him. To be baptized, he was talking about actually water baptism here, that was the first time they would have a baptism there in that particular kind of situation as the church was actually beginning. He said, for the forgiveness of your sin, it's... Um, it's a word that can actually be translated because of the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism simply um, shows that you are really repentant outwardly because the Holy Spirit's baptism has already taken place inwardly. And then Acts 4.12, I love the verse, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And then verse 20. And he went, that's the man that was formerly demon-possessed, and he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was what? Amazed. They weren't afraid now. They're beginning to see there is real change in this man who is the, the first missionary to the Gentiles. And he went here to the area of Decapolis. Decapolis is the Greek word, deca, and polis means ten cities. And its idea it was a group of cities, about ten cities up on the hilltop in the first area right around Syria, but close enough to the Sea of Galilee you could walk. It was just a, a number of miles. And so this, this uh, group of cities where Roman legions were often stationed here, the Maccabees, the Jews, had tried to take it back, but the Romans still had a, a major amount of control here at this point. Um, and we're back in Israel. And so this guy was going to be a, a witness to these soldiers. He was going to be a witness to these people, all these Jews that hold these pigs. Well, maybe they didn't have so many pigs now. But anyway, he, he was going to be a witness to all of them. And the people were amazed, mainly because he was a changed person. Now, when I got saved, there was definite change. Some of you know I used to have a rock band and so forth. And it was the 60s rock kind of corny now compared to what's out there today, but people did notice I changed, and I left all that. Nobody told me to do it, and my life has changed, and it is forever. Since then, continues to change. What an amazing picture of a new man as he's standing there talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, go, go to your people and tell them. It's the Great Commission. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. 
and uh, he did. What an amazing picture is the boat slides into the water with Jesus and a few of the disciples in it and starts heading back to Capernaum across the lake about eight miles. Calm water this time. The storm has been calmed. I believe that Satan may, it's very possible, he may have stirred up that storm when they were coming over because he didn't want this to happen and he had some idea that Jesus was going to do something. It's very possible. I can't prove that. And that's, this man is now liberated and he walks away waving to Jesus, thinking about all that has happened. What a picture. And the story now is going to be heard by the disciples. They were there. They watched the whole thing. Really, this is all about Jesus, not about the man that was changed. It's, it's showing that Jesus is God. It's showing that Jesus has power over the demonic realm. No one has power over that. They may say they do, but no one today does but Christ. And so he was affirming his his own authenticity by doing this, that who he was was God. And the, the disciples were awfully slow to get it. They still don't get it quite enough here, but they're better than they were when they were in the boat, and they said, Jesus, wake up. And Jesus said, oh, you a little faith. And then he stilled the storm, and then they were feeling better. And now they got to this place, and he, he, he heals or casts out these demons, and they see all of this, and they see he's got... He's got power over the elements, but he's also got power over Satan's realm. They still weren't ready to call him by what he should have been called, which the demons did call him, by the way. But they would eventually. You see the progress that Mark is building for us as he's showing how Jesus is God. He says, this is not about how to do an exorcism. Uh, it's not about that. It's about Jesus and who he is. It shows his authority in the realm of demons and Satan, um, who must eventually bow, who will eventually be cast into the abyss. So I pray that that's true of your life, that you have turned to Christ and you've found him. Maybe you're not demon-possessed. I, I hope not. I think it's hard to tell sometimes. This was a pretty severe situation. But I do think that Christ is able to change our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the word. We thank you for this wonderful story about Christ's authority. Blessed to our lives, and may he be the authority in our lives also. May we clearly have committed ourselves to him, found the forgiveness of our sin in Christ, to become new creatures in Christ, we pray. In Christ's name. And everybody said, amen.